Jesus, we just thank you for this day and just thank you for the faces in this room, God, for those that are familiar and for those that are brand new to us. We just thank you for who you are and just how you have given us your spirit, God, when we commit to you. Just thank you for the joy um, and the and your glory that's in this room right now, God, um, for the hearts that you've brought together. We just pray over our service, God, and that you would just speak through Joseph so that we can go out into our community and just make impact for you, Lord. In your name, amen. All right. Um, one of the things that... Uh, I know my dad and I will talk about kind of a lot is we'll talk about like generational differences and part of the reason why I know my dad has had to go and learn a whole lot about that has been because from his career he's had to take like go to a bunch of conferences and stuff where they'll talk about like the that that there are certain differences that even in like marketing and whatnot you know that you have to treat people different generations differently because there are different things people are worried about and concerned about and um, you know sometimes things that are uh, the stereotypes about different groups um, sometimes they're stereotypes for a reason because statistically they're they're accurate sometimes they're not um and one of the things that i will say so you know that that's talking about stuff that's kind of factual so something that is entirely um anecdotal at best is that i've always found it interesting especially being somebody who's kind of grown up as millennial uh whenever people make fun of the younger people and i know i'm hitting the point where i'm starting to become not a young people anymore but um they make fun of the young people for being glued to their phones and their devices. And I always find that interesting because Meredith, my wife and I would go to restaurants and we look around and say, look around and look at the people who are buried in their phones. It's the baby boomers. Like they're all addicted to their, to their, to their phones. Um, but you know, it's funny because I was, I was sitting here and whenever I have something that is purely anecdotal that I've thought in my head, I always kind of wonder if there's any kind of truth to it. And I started like actually looking up like different behaviors of uh, you know, different generations that so came to phones that led me down this rabbit hole into why people are so addicted to their phones. And it gets to the subject of um, loneliness. And if you think about it, it's something that is not unique to baby boomers. It's just unique to any generation as you start getting older and older. That you start hitting this point where <clears throat> some of your friends you've always had aren't around anymore, and it, it's not necessarily because of kind of the macabre, like people getting older and you know some people dying and stuff like that. Even though that certainly happens, sometimes it's just because you're not working anymore, or <clears throat> you've lost track of some of your old college buddies, or, or something like that. You know, so as you get older, your social circle starts getting a little smaller, and a little smaller, and a little smaller, and you finally start getting to this point where you actually start legitimately. Um, almost having a, a phobia of your, your shrinking social circle. Um, and it's something that, you know, I, I think kind of flies under the radar sometimes because, you know, when people want to be, they want to be social and they crave that, that, that interaction of other individuals, um, especially as they start getting older, it can be seen as something that is uh, a nuisance on other individuals that like, well, so-and-so, they just want to talk to me all the time, you know, and especially like kids is turning back on the millennials and the Gen Zers kind of coming up. Um, 
you know, whenever your parents want to talk to you all the time, like part of it's because like they're your parents and they love you. But part of it is is because like, you know, they're they're you are now part of their social circle that's still there and it's probably going to be there the whole time. So they want to be able to talk to you, um, even if you're Pat and you want to talk forever. Um, so I love Pat. Pat, you're a great guy. Um but, you know, it is funny that this is something that is actually, like, has been very well, like, studied. Uh, and one of the – there, there was an AP study that was conducted – AP poll that was conducted. And what they looked at is among generations as they get older and older, so currently kind of your baby boomers, um, the two greatest fears that they have are that they won't have enough money for retirement. So it's kind of intuitive. Um, <clears throat> but the second – biggest fear they have is that they're going to be isolated and alone in the later years of their life. So it's this fear of being lonely. And this is something that you can see actually impact people's decision making um, in kind of an interesting way. The Federal Reserve, uh, you know, obviously being concerned with how people use their money and manage their money and everything, was looking at statistics surrounding retirement. And was saying that when people retire, one third of people who retire will actually go back into the workforce, either part time or full time. Now, you might think, especially if you want to read some kind of political meaning into that, you might think that has something to do with economic status or something like that. But what we actually found out is that only 35% of those people who went back in cited anything to do with finances at all. Everybody else, they just missed their friends. They just missed that social circle that they had that they no longer had. And what you start seeing here is that, you know, ironically, when you, you know, even when we interact with people, especially in a more rural community that uh, kind of have this attitude of like, we well, you know what, I don't need a whole lot of people in my life, you know, and, and they kind of this, this, this strongly independent uh, feeling, you know, even those people have that more limited set of people in their lives that give them that sense of companionship. And this is a very natural thing because we're not built to be isolated creatures if you, even if you look at this <clears throat> not from like a theological perspective I mean it's very natural you you do any kind of studies of uh, you know human history kind of kind of uh, uh, you know uh, coming up and evolving over time in different societies and all that and what you find out is that even with groups that we consider isolated groups of you know tribes and civilizations and whatnot even there those people were collectivizing they were getting together and staying in their groups you don't see people just going off on their own unless they're going to go off and die i mean basically so you know it's something that is built into the fabric of who what, who we are as 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 members of families and societies and tribes and whatnot but it's also a theological point because you can just look at the creation of man and you can see God explaining that we are built as social creatures. We're designed to have companionship. In Genesis 2, verses 18 through 23, we read this. <clears throat> then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every animal and every bird of the sky and brought each of the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib, and he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one, at last, is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she has take, for she was taken from, from man. 
and when we sit here and we read that, you know, this is something that any of you who are aware of, you know, my thoughts on, you know, kind of Genesis and how that reconciles with natural history and all that, you know, we'll, we'll kind of know that, you know, I, I have thoughts and, and, you know, about kind of how things are written and all that. But regardless of how you read the story of Genesis, the one thing that is very clearly articulated in here is the nature of God's creation and the nature of mankind and how God created us and, and how God did not create us. God did not create us to be isolated beings because if he wanted us to be isolated beings, then he could have done that without a creation. Uh, you know, what you end up seeing is God first stating that it's not good for man to be alone and then creating everything around us. And so in a sense, it becoming this this almost very like like mankind-centric view of creation that everything was created to accompany what was kind of the, the, the cornerstone creation of mankind, this creation that was made in God's image. But even then, it was not enough to just simply exist out in nature, to exist out in the holler somewhere in Caroline County on CCC Road that hasn't been touched since the 1920s, if you've ever had to drive it. It's... It's that we were created to actually have other human beings in our life that that can join us, that, that can be as, you know, it's, it's worded in the translation that I was reading, the, the corresponding uh, portion of, of who we are. And I really like the way that that was phrased. You know, when I sit here and I'm, I'm preparing for these messages and I look across different uh, translations and parallel Bibles and stuff, there was something about looking at it being described as a corresponding person that I thought was was interesting because it really describes the fact that there is this this nature of of belonging that there's almost like this natural mechanics that goes along with the fact of I need other people in my life and this is something that we see borne out in all the things that we just talked about different studies about being lonely but we can see it in the way that we cope with things ourselves I mean Yes, when something you know bad happens to us or we're mad, maybe there's there's a period of time that we want to be alone. But at some point in time, you want to vent, right? At some point in time, you need to be embraced. At a certain point in time, you need to have other people you can bounce things off of. We crave that interaction of other people. And so it's very understanding why we would fear whenever we don't have that in our lives, whenever we feel like we are alone. Sometimes we can have other people in our lives. We can be surrounded by other people but still feel very, very alone. Alone as a result of either something that we're going through, alone as a, a part of our circumstances that we may be having to endure, or alone because we feel like we have a mission, a calling, something that we're supposed to do, or, or feeling alone because we feel like, yeah, there's other people in my life, but I feel like more often than not, they're all actively working against me, and so I may be in a crowd of people, but in this moment feeling utterly alone. Well, this is something that we see throughout the Bible. You can see examples of all this because it is a very natural thing. It's just kind of kind of happened in this fallen world in which we live in. That God builds us to be communal. He builds us to have corresponding pieces of ourselves. And so it's natural that one of the things that sin would try to do is to break what God created as a good thing. And so we see many different instances, many different forms of people feeling isolated in the Bible, but there's fortunately something that we can learn out of every single one of these. There's almost like this, this great wisdom that we can see out of how we deal and how we cope with our loneliness. Kind of the, the conventional worldly knowledge is that, okay, well, if you, if you feel alone, then you know there are different communities out there and there are people you want to help you. But in, in a sense, if you think about it, that's kind of like trying to treat 
a drug with a, with another drug. I mean, it's it's saying I'm lonely, and so I'm just going to go find other people. But the problem is that even when you find other people, you're still going to run into the same thing. You're still going to run into situations where people may make you feel isolated, or you may have conflicts, or maybe people working against you, and uh, or your circumstances change, and all of a sudden that group of people you found that can now surround you, your circumstances change, so now all of a sudden you feel alone again in your group of people. So there has to be something greater that cures us of these feelings of loneliness. There has to be something else that we can cling on to in these moments that we feel alone. And I know what I'm supposed to look at is I'm supposed to sit here and say, well, this is why you have God and you have the Holy Spirit living in your heart because then you're never alone. And that, that, is, that is not an inaccurate thing to state, but I think in context of feeling lonely in our circumstances, that's somewhat unsatisfying because that's all well and good, but the reality is that the nature of you know the, the Holy Spirit in our lives is that we can't reach out and touch the Holy Spirit. And sometimes that's what we're craving. So the question is, is when that's not possible, how do we continue moving on? And how do we continue keeping our, our eyes on things that God would rather have us keep our eyes on rather than focusing on kind of the misery of our own situation? And so I have three different kind of examples of how we see loneliness uh, bearing itself out in the scriptures. And the first of which is in 1 Samuel. So one of the stories, it's, it's a, 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 a person many of us may have heard, but it's a story we don't cover very often uh, in a lot of like Bible studies and Sunday schools, things like that. It's the story of Hannah. So Hannah is an individual who, keep in mind, is living in this era when you have uh, you know husbands who have multiple wives and and all that. And and so during this period of time, you can imagine that between wives, there's going to be some degree of rivalry, right? And even as I say that, and as I prepare for the sermon, it takes a tremendous amount of self-control not to make a dumb joke that's going to get me in trouble talking about that. But, you know, you have these different women and they kind of, you know, are in close proximity to each other and, and they're jockeying for status within the family, within like the social structure or whatever it is. Uh, and, and you know, the, the kind of the pinnacle of the thing that you could do, at least from like a family perspective, uh, your role as a, as, a, as a mother figure in the family is to have a child, specifically to have a son, right? And that's what was happening in the life of Hannah, is that she was being really actively taught haunted by her husband's other wife um, for the fact that she was childless and as a result of this was feeling this this tremendous amount of shame that she couldn't do what she felt like she meant to do and so in this moment despite the fact that she still had her husband there that you know we read very much loved her and you know was very much you know a, a, a you know emotionally there for her she still felt very alone because the reality is that it's kind of one of these situations that husbands find themselves in sometimes that, you know, our, our, our wives are going through something and th there's not really any magic thing we can say to make it better, you know. And so sometimes it, it just becomes a, a, a sense of loneliness that, you know, our companion has to work through. So this is what we read in First Samuel chapter 1. And this is the context surrounding us. So starting in verse 6, we read this. Her, Hannah's rival, would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband, Elkanah, would say. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So again, it's kind of one of these things that you look at it and you go... 
husband, just stop talking. She wants a kid. You being here and saying, come on, I'm as good as a baby, like isn't, probably isn't helping. Uh, verse 10, deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. So this at this time, what you have is you have Eli, who and that's kind of what the, what this on the screen is a picture of, is just kind of an artist rendition of the fact that you have Eli, this priest, who's sitting there and overhearing this prayer. And so overhearing this prayer, this, this is what we end up seeing, uh, uh, kicking off in the very next verse. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. Sometimes when we read things in the Bible, it, it becomes, you know, I, I've kind of described it before as, you know, we read this as if you, it's some kind of stoic Greek play that's occurring in an amphitheater and that these aren't real people who are having real uh, crises of the heart. And I, the way that this is written, I think it emphasizes the humanity of exactly what Hannah is going through in a way that so many of us can understand. Describing it as something where you have this individual who is so wrought with pain and so so tormented by her situation that the words don't even come out of her mouth. That's something that so many of us have experienced that level of pain, whether it's whether it's pain as a result of, of the loss of a family member or pain as a result of something that's going on with us medically, whether it's pain as a result of, of a situation that we wanted to come to fruition and it just didn't happen, a missed opportunity. There's so many times that we've all had those situations where we had that and we were having to deal with it on the inside and it it felt like something that hurt so much that even just saying it risked you losing that shred of stability of you keeping it all together. And that's exactly where Hannah was, that she was in so much pain that the words couldn't even come out of her mouth. And so you see Eli turning around and, and saying, you know, go in peace and may God grant the request that you made. But notice that Hannah wasn't you know, she didn't immediately get the kid. Like, it's not like, you know, fingers were snapped and there was a poof of smoke and boom, there's a kid, right? Um, the whole process would be a lot easier if that's how it worked, but that's not how it works. And so, you, you, but you still had Hannah going on her way and it says she ate and she no longer looked despondent. And so in this moment, you can see those elements of what people talk about when they say, hand your burden over to the Lord. Because what had happened in this moment is that Hannah had made an appeal to God. And in this moment, she, had, she, she felt, she believed and had faith that God had actually taken control of the situation. And I think control is actually what the key is here in her loneliness. <clears throat> the cure for her sense of loneliness was not 
her situation immediately going away. It wasn't the fact that she immediately got that child. It was the fact that she was willing to actually acknowledge the fact that God has a sense of dominion over whatever your circumstances are. That God is bigger than what you're doing. And so if God has dominion over all things and he has dominion over all circumstances, then I have a a adjustment I can make of my own perspective where instead of focusing on my circumstances, I can focus and have faith in God's dominion over the circumstances that he is going to do something with this sense of isolation, with this sense of, of, of pain that I'm feeling in this moment. There's a phrase that I know a lot of people use. We'll talk about picking yourself up by your bootstraps. And, you know, I'm not, uh, there, there is some degree of truth to this. But I think where that really comes into play is not in saying just cowboy up or cowgirl up and get over what you're dealing with as much as it is in saying don't focus on the thing you're dealing with and instead focus on God. Because God is going to be the thing that's not going to change. God's plan is going to be the thing that's not going to be questioned. So while we may feel utterly helpless and utterly out of control of whatever we're currently dealing with, God is not out of control. He is the epitome of control. And so in placing our faith and our our perspective on God, we can overcome whatever our circumstances are so that even if God doesn't remove that mantle from us, we can still march forward with a degree of confidence. And as we saw with Hannah, with some degree of joy at the fact that, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to me in my circumstances. And I don't know if I'm ever going to feel like somebody else is coming along with me in this and that I'm going to have that companionship again. But I know that God is there and my peace is found in God's goodness, not in whatever my circumstances are. And that becomes the key. Now, what we know of Hannah is that that the words of Eli ended up coming true, that Hannah did end up conceiving a child and that that child would end up becoming Samuel, the prophet that would go on to to anoint uh, King Saul and eventually David. And so he'd go on to do great things. Now, in the prayer of Hannah, her prayer of thankfulness and thanksgiving following the birth of her son, you can actually see uh, kind of a, a demonstration, her acknowledgement of God's dominion over her situation. So this is her in her joy, in her victory, praying in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah prayed, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is filled up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. And there is no rock like our God. So the main takeaway that we end up getting from looking at Hannah's sense of loneliness and isolation due to her circumstances is that joy was found in acknowledging God's dominion over the circumstances and not simply letting the circumstances drive who we are and how we act and how we feel about things, but letting God's dominion take priority over the world or the circumstances dominion over our hearts and over our minds. And in that way, we're able to move forward and we are able to overcome whatever we're dealing with. Not because of our strength, but because of relying on the strength of God. But that's just talking about our circumstances. And circumstances are something that, you know, uh, is is probably the most universal. But I think in so many ways, many of us also end up with a sense of isolation over whatever our calling or our purpose or our mission is. Whether that's something that's occupational, whether that's something that's ministry related, we can very, very often find ourselves in a situation where if you actually try living your life in a way that is consistent with the scriptures, you find yourself living on the outs. And not just on the outs of, you know, 
the bad, evil, secular society, quote unquote, but also within other people in the church who have their own ideas of, you know, doctrine and dogma of how things are supposed to work. And you're simply trying to do what you feel God has called you to do or the way that you feel God is communicating to you through the scriptures. And yet all these people want to push you away and isolate you. It's very easy to find yourself in a situation among people who are supposed to be friends and supporters. But yet because you feel you have a conviction on your heart, suddenly you feel isolated. Elisha knew what the sense of isolation was due to his calling and in what I, I frequently call one of one of my, my favorite Old Testament stories, we end up seeing this situation of Elijah when he is in this moment of, of frustration where he feels totally isolated from everybody else around him. He's basically at the point of wanting to quit, of just wanting to completely give up the ghost. And so what does he do? He, he draws away. He actually feeds into the opposite of what God has called us to be. So he kind of eschews everybody away and he retreats and hits a point where he just says, I'd rather just die. I'd rather just die and give up because everybody is against me. But let's look at, you know, once again, what we can see out of how he deals or how God deals with him in this sense of isolation and loneliness and how we can apply that to our own lives. In 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, verses 9 through 10, we read this. He, Elijah, entered a cave there and spent the night. Suddenly the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. So right there you can see that this is a very literal sense of being alone at this point in time. And that's what ends up happening in those situations where you're trying to do what you feel is right and nobody else is getting behind you. This is a conversation I had had just this last week with somebody who was talking about the fact that, you know, there, there was uh, some, some kind of uh, mission type work that they were doing. And for a while, amongst all their peers, it was very much a fad. Everybody was on board with it. Everybody was raising money for it. And everybody was really, really cool with it. And they found themselves now, where it's no longer a fad, it's no longer popular, feeling very isolated. Because they still feel convicted to do this. But yet, it's not the popular thing anymore. People don't want to put posts on Instagram and Facebook about it anymore, talking about how awesome it is. And so they feel very alone because they feel convicted that this is what God has called them to do. And so in this moment, they feel very physically isolated from everybody else, including the people that are supposed to be behind them. And sometimes that can cut the heart. It's the reason why so many Christians who end up having an experience at like a conference or in a Bible study or at a, at a church service or something like that end up being on fire for God and, you know, they're going to do all the things and, and, and it's awesome and they love Jesus and they're going to they're gonna live for God. And then the first instance that they have an interaction with people who are supposed to be their support network, their friends, their family, even their church, and they turn around and make fun of them because they're enthusiastic or they sit here and say well I know who you were before and so no I, I don't believe it you're going to have to prove to me you really feel this way that can be such a damning thing to their spirits it can drag them down and cause them just like Elijah to just want to quit and so let's see how God deals with this 
Then he, God, the voice of God said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountain and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I think what I love about this so much is, is two things. The First of all, the fact that you can see that the, the, the strength of God was not seen in the things that we would consider strength. It wasn't found in the wind, and it wasn't found in the fire, and it wasn't found in the earthquake. Things that we would associate with these massive displays of power that we can't control. The metaphor I've given in the past is that, you know, I, I, I can recall at one point in time when I was having to go out to sea on, uh, on an aircraft carrier, we, we just had to uh, buckle down and go through the center of this hurricane. And it, it was all the, all the other ships, you know, our escorts and everything, they all kind of went around, and then we just kind of latched everything down and just kind of went through the middle of it. And when we did that, we kind of hit the eye of the storm. And so in that moment, it's, you know, the, the first time in days that we've had where, you know, there's not like a bunch of rain and stuff like that. So I, I hit a point where I said, I want to get some fresh air. So I went up to this area that that is all the all the ships that they call Vultures Row because people just kind of hang out over there and stare at the planes and you know I went up there and you go way up on this mast on this uh, uh, superstructure on this um, uh, aircraft carrier and I went out and you could see everything and it was strangely tranquil for being a warship because there weren't people running around the deck doing everything there weren't jets taking off you know you didn't have all the escorts around you doing all their things all you heard was the wind around you and you could look around and it was kind of an eerie feeling because no matter where you looked all the way around the ship, you could just see these big white capping waves out in the middle of the ocean and there's no land, there's no anything around you. And it was in that moment that you kind of realized how, you know, throughout all of history, these big ships can sit here and so easily succumb to the forces of nature. You know, you kind of have this eerie moment where you look at it and you say, if this ship goes down right now, we're all dead. <laughs> there's, there's just no coming out of this. Uh, but, you know, despite the fact that you could see these awesome signs and, 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 and displays of power from nature, God showed all of those things to Elijah, but yet came to Elijah in what many translations word as a still small voice. In this thing that supersedes what we consider shows of power. And I think that in these moments of loneliness, this becomes very, very poignant to our own lives. Because so often where we look for the source, uh, 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 some kind of cure for our loneliness ends up being in things that make sense to us. I just need to find a different community. I just need to find a different church. I just need to find different friends. And while those things may provide you with some sort of temporary relief or may provide you with some, you know, uh, uh, some sort of minute amount of support in the short term, it's not ultimately going to cure what you really need, which is you understand that there's something bigger than your sense of loneliness, that maybe your calling and your mission isn't about you. 
Maybe what you're destined to do isn't about you being popular or isn't about you being celebrated. Maybe it's about what God is going to have you do. And this is the second thing I love about this this story so much is because of the number of times that God turns around and after Elijah saying, well, you know what? It's just I'm here and nobody's supporting me and nobody's doing what, what they say they want to do. And this is just bad and I just want to die. And then God comes back to Elisha every time and says, what are you doing here, Elisha? Implying that he's given the wrong answer each time. That you're focused so much on your own situation and you need to stop it. And it's only when Elijah hears this voice that he wraps his head and he goes to the cave where he's finally listening to God. And in this moment, we end up seeing this interaction, picking up in verse 14. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, he replied. But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazel as king over Aram. Now, that last end you would expect if this were a movie that there would be something more profound some big wisdom that God would give Elijah but what I love that God did is God turned around and just continued his marching orders so the way that God restored Elijah after demonstrating that he is bigger than the circumstances and bigger than the situation around him and how lonely he may feel is by turning around and saying you've been on the mountain now get back to work this becomes the area where the picking yourself up by the bootstraps maybe makes a little bit of sense because sometimes that's actually needed. It is very possible that we become so addicted to our loneliness and our sorry situation that we end up not wanting to get out of it. That we end up saying like, no, I want to, I'm focused on me right now and what I need and I need other people to sit here and do this with me or I need other people to be cheering me on. But we have to be willing to step out and do things sometimes on our own because, once again, it's not about us. Sometimes the cure for our loneliness is a little bit of an attitude adjustment to understand that we need to want to get better and to get past our sense of hurt and loneliness so that we can continue doing what we were meant to do. But the only way that that happens, once again, is if we understand God's dominion over our calling. So God has dominion over our circumstances. That's how we get over the fact that we have these these rough circumstances that just drag us down so much. God has dominion over our sense of, 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 of belonging and our need for approval and support of other people around us. But God doesn't just have dominion over that. This becomes constantly the, the theme over and over again when we look at our loneliness and what we can take away from it. The most active form of, of loneliness that you know we can possibly feel is when we have people actively pushing against us, like actively trying to put us in a place where we are isolated. This is the way that David felt so many times in his in his life where, you know, he, he may have been, you know, anointed as a king at a at a younger age by Samuel, but you know, he ends up being hunted. He ends up having to run, you know, from King Saul and from, from individuals that may have cheered him on and supported him over the years. But now it's not just a matter of he has a mission and he's trying to do his mission and now he feels isolated and it could all just go away if he stops doing his mission. This is a matter of saying like, no, because you are who you are, I want you gone. 
you know, I, I have spent not an insignificant amount of time behind pulpits and in other places sitting here saying that I feel like the sense of Christian oppression in the United States is greatly overblown. It's this this desire that a lot of, you know, evangelicals, and I know that we're kind of evangelicals, but the way that, you know, evangelicals have this way, weird desire to say that they are the victim, that they are being oppressed, because it's almost like that gives you a boogeyman to fight against. Instead of just focusing on your calling and doing your calling regardless of who the boogeyman is. But rest assured, there are people who are oppressed. There are absolutely individual instances of people who are oppressed. You can look even in our world today and find people who are actively being oppressed. There are, there are no short amount of underground churches that exist in other countries where they're not cool with the whole Jesus thing, where they're having to experience very real oppression. Not just because somebody said something mean about your Jesus meme on Facebook, but because you believe something something and they want you dead or gone. That's oppression. Well, this is very much the way that David likely felt where you have this prophet of the Lord come to you and say, you're going to be the king, but then you find yourself being chased and being hunted and constantly on the run, maybe with a few individuals. But I mean, I can't imagine the sense of isolation that you feel when you're supposed to be the pinnacle. You're supposed to be the leader where you have no peers, but yet you're constantly running for your own life. This is where some of his psalms, understanding the context of his of his psalms, ends up being very enlightening. One such example is in Psalms 13. It's the entire chapter. It's only six verses. Uh, when we read chapter 13, it says this. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemy say, I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully to me, with me. There was a lot of King James English in that, but you know, once again, the way that this translation words it kind of tra more transliterates it, it, it to me is very impactful because when you hit that verse five, that's where everything turns. The first four verses are David talking about his sense of despair and isolation and the fact he has people actively pushing against him. But once you hit verse five, there, that's where it turns, and that's where you can see David's response to this 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 feeling of loneliness. But I have trusted in Thy mercy; my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. He's not being occupied by the fact that these other individuals are hunting him, but yet there is a sense of humility over his own situation. One of the commentaries I was reading about this, the, the, the Cambridge Bible put it this way. It said, humility transforms his resolution to give thanks into prayer. And I love the way that's worded because that right there kind of describes, I think, the very difficult transition so many of us have when we feel like we're being oppressed and we're being put down by other people. That there's a sense that we need to make it right. That we need to push back against the people who are oppressing us. That we need to, you know, somehow fight back and that, you know, that that's what's just. That's what's right. But yet what you see coming out of the, the Psalms of David is that 
there is no sense of satisfaction over taking that mentality. The only sense of satisfaction you can have is by turning around, putting your pride on the sidelines, and instead having the humility to acknowledge, once again, the dominion of God over your life and over your circumstances. One of the, some, some, several of the translations you'll read will actually start that verse 5, uh, you know, saying, but I have trusted in thy mercy, as saying, but as for me. It's this series of choice and this decision that he's making that I'm going to choose to have trust in the Lord, that I am going to put myself on the sideline, that I am not going to worry about trying to avenge my own wrongs or anything like that, and that I am going to continue doing as God would have me do. And in that, God will have the victory. I hope he has the victory in a way that leads with me not getting, you know, cut down by the sword by my oppressors. But if that's what God wills, that's what God wills. That sense of humility, I think, is the true test of our faith. Are we willing to boldly go forth, joyfully doing something that we know may not end in a way that we would prefer, but still do it with songs of thanksgiving in our heart because we know that God has a purpose and that his will is ultimately what we are trying to support. Christ himself displayed this same sense of humility. He did it in many ways. He did it in many different times. But just look at, I mean, when you, when you look at his life and you think about times when he was isolated, there are several different incidences. But one of the ones that sticks out to me the most is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and I remember getting to, I'm sure it looks nothing today like what it did. But I mean, I, I remember I got to, to kind of preach a little devotion, a little homily in the Garden of Gethsemane when we went to Israel with a group. And, you know, when you're in there, it is interesting because even today you can see all the bustling stuff in like modern day Jerusalem and then old Jerusalem. And then Gethsemane is over here and it's it's relatively quiet. And I don't know if it's the walls around it or the trees or what, but it even seems to block out a lot of the city noise and it's this quiet place. And this is where Jesus retreated when he wanted to go pray uh, before getting arrested and ultimately uh, later on tried and then crucified. Then in this moment, he felt utterly alone. If not because of this thing that he knew he was going to have to deal with that nobody else did, then certainly because he brought some of his disciples with him and they kept falling asleep. And so in this moment you see him praying these prayers where he is he is feeling the weight and the burden of what he alone is going to have to deal with but yet his humility mark 14 verse 36 and he said abba father all things are possible for you take this cup away from me nevertheless not what i will but what you will jesus understood the dominion of his father and so what we're seeing recurring over and over and over again is this sense that God has a plan, that God has a purpose, and that this right here ends up being the only true cure for any sense of loneliness or isolation that we may feel. We can try plugging that sense of isolation with other things, with other hobbies or with other pursuits, with other people and social groups, but ultimately the only thing that's truly going to cure the hole in our heart that we feel we need is by clinging to the cross and by understanding that God does have a plan, that God does have a purpose, that God does have a mission for you and that he is bigger than our circumstances he's bigger than our trials and that he's bigger than our oppressors not because of any kind of victory that we are guaranteed but because of the victory that we know god has already assured 
This is what it means to become a new creation in Jesus Christ. Not to become a new creation so that we can suddenly win or so that we can suddenly get everything that we want, but become a new creation so that now our victory unto ourselves becomes far less important than the glory that is Jesus Christ. Because when we are a new creation united in the body of Christ, we then share in a part of that victory. So no matter what life is throwing at you, no matter what feelings of isolation you may be feeling as a result of the the, the circumstances life has thrown at you, as a result of people who may want to stand against you, or as a result of the passions and the convictions and the mission that you have decided to take on, take heart. Because God's dominion does reign supreme over anything that may try to stand in your way. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would that you would help us to be able to understand that you'd help us to to keep in mind when when you are when you are reigning supreme and when you are in control of all the things in our lives. Help us to not get distracted by all the different things that would that would try to pull us away and would try to try to promise us that we can have a sense of belonging. Help us to understand that your dominion is is all that's really needed and that faith in your dominion is all that's needed to to cure what ails us, to cure what what is what is hurting our our, our aching hearts. Father God, we, we thank you for all of the the blessings that you give us and for all the examples that you give us of your of your goodness and of your faithfulness, the things you've told us throughout the prophets and throughout the scriptures, and the things that you show us through the lives of people that we know and in our own lives. Help us to have eyes that are open and hearts that are open to be able to see those examples of your dominion so that when life gets hard and when people and things try to stand against us, we can rise above it and that we can display the same kind of humility that we saw in Jesus Christ. Father God, keep us humble and keep us focused on the things which are truly important. Your son's precious in all the name we pray. Amen. Yeah.